This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for joining me for this special New Year's Day episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich. If this is your first episode, thanks so much for joining me here in 2020. We do these stories every week of the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. And right now, it's the end of 2019, and the end of the year is a natural time for a lot of us to sort of pause and reflect. As I've spent time thinking back to the content on this show over the past year, a few a few themes about the future of agriculture certainly stood out to me. I've put together these reflection-type episodes in the past during this time of year, and with this one, I wanted to go a little bit further to draw attention to some important topics and share a clip for, from each of those topics from an episode that we actually had on the show this past year. I think this is going to be valuable for you if this is your first episode or if this is your 186th and you've heard each of these. I still think it's kind of neat to see them in this context, especially in the context of these trends that are so important for the future of agriculture. Hey, you may be thinking, I'm busy. I don't have time to sit through this whole episode, so I'm just going to give them to you right now for the the too long didn't read types out there. And the trends that come to mind as I reflect on the 52 episodes or 51, I guess, episodes so far that we did in 2019 are these regenerative agriculture, investment in ag tech innovation, water, e-commerce or direct-to-consumer, I'm putting those two together, and alternative proteins. Now, I'll briefly take these one by one and just share a clip from a previous episode that directly addressed them. Then at the end, I'm going to share some thoughts about where I hope this show heads in 2020. So I hope you'll stick around for those as well. Up first are Justin Dahlgren and Eric Thalkin from episode 135. These two farmers are from different parts of Nebraska, and they actually came on the show to talk about farmer adoption of new technology. It wasn't until the end when I asked them both about the, the future of their operations that they both started talking about the likelihood of moving to more regenerative practices. Now, keep in mind, these are two Nebraska-born Husker fans with roots in very traditional agriculture. So the fact that they were both on the same page about moving to regenerative really sort of struck me. I'd heard about regenerative in the past. We've talked about it on the show, but I I wasn't really expecting it in this context. And to me, that was telling. In this clip, you're going to hear from Justin first and then from Eric. I'll be real honest with you. If I was to look at, you know, where do I see myself in, in 25 years, you know, 25, 30 years where I think we're going to, we're heading, I I think we'll, you know, covering a few more acres than what we are today. You know, I think we'll be covering more acres. We'll continue to grow. I will say though, that our feedlot, which is an integral part of our operation will probably not be here. I don't think it's going to be a thing. I think this regenerative agriculture movement, cover crops and things like that will become such a big play that grazing animals out on on grass or out on cover crops will be the rotation option of choice and then you'll grow something like corn or a few other things but i think that'll be the that's where we're headed so i don't think we'll have that and i think the other thing is 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 with that i don't think we'll run much equipment in in that time that's where i think we're headed and to be real honest with you that's something that excites me because i like i really like focusing on our business and i i enjoy driving a tractor for a couple days not a couple weeks that's my personal opinion and i I really think that's where we're headed. I think we'll be in a 
point where a lot of us under a center pivot will have cover crops as are probably every other year rotation. And I think it'll, you know, we'll have less people on the farm and I'll run most of it from a cell phone. That's what I, I see, but we'll be farming regeneratively at the same time. That that rotation is, is already happening here here on the farm. Yeah. It's We are forced to have a rotation, but it is extremely input efficient to farm that way. Coming out of a, of a, of a grazing rotation, your inputs are so minimal. The crop is so efficient. Mm-hmm. The weed control is so easy that it's, th- that's an integral part of the farm. I see that. Sure. And I think that's where we're headed. And, but that's kind of part of the reason that we struggle. You know, some of these things are yep. that, that's two in the bush and we got one in hand. Yep. And, and how the farm's going to look in 25 years, I, I have to agree with Justin that, that we're, that we're hard, headed down this regenerative road. I, I also see with, technology getting better and keeping track of operations and keeping track of impacts that that our activities have on the farm will probably be more visible if if i had to predict i would i can maybe see a scale maybe not being paid you know everyone brings their corn in for three dollars and fifty cents or if it's organic for nine dollars but maybe something in between those two or even above so you're paid more for your impacts. You could be a, a high impact producer, you know, very high nitrogen, high tillage, stuff like that. And, and maybe your product will be worth less than someone who does, you know, less tillage, more grazing and stuff like that. And, and th- that technology is, is on the horizon. I, I, think, I think it's getting close to, to roll out. I've, I've had folks, you know, present me with some platforms where we can maybe make this work. I don't totally understand blockchain. I got to be honest, but people seem to be pretty hyped up about, about blockchain technology and making things visible and maybe getting paid for the positive impacts that, that we have on the planet farming this way. And, and, and so right now I'm trying to, like I said, I don't totally understand blockchain or the value that, that I'm supposed to get out of it. But I definitely want to be transparent and I, I want to keep up because I do believe that's the way that, that we're headed. I don't know how fast it's going to happen. Some people think it's going to happen fast. Some people don't, don't you know, think it'll be a ways off. But I, I definitely want to be ready for that. You heard there are two young farmers interested in being transparent with their practices in the hopes of a premium that they can quantitatively prove their sustainability. I think it's a trend worth watching and a trend that we'll probably see continue as technology gets better and the interest on in transparency from both sides actually can lead to more market efficiency when it comes to a sustainable agriculture. Next is a clip from one of the most popular episodes of this year, which makes sense because it was an in-depth and wide-ranging interview about agricultural innovation, and the guest was, of course, fantastic. The trend this speaks to is that of investment in ag tech innovation. I talk with consultant Renee Vasilos, who comes from a background of both international agribusiness and also on the public sector, very, very unique background and focus in agricultural innovation and sustainability. Renee has since accepted a position as Agriculture Innovation Director at the Nature Conservancy, so I I hope to have her back on the show to talk about this new role and what she's doing now. So, Renee, if you're listening, let's try to make that happen. Here's Renee Vasilos talking about why we are not seeing more of these ag tech startups gaining widespread farmer adoption. 
my frustration with this space is frankly, I don't think we've been seeing enough technologies that are hitting the mark. So I'll use an example from my time at John Deere. When John Deere introduced the 7760, which is a cotton harvesting machine that bales the cotton into round bales in the unit. So before that, it was a much more complicated system. You harvested with a cotton picker, and then you had to transfer the cotton into this mod- another piece of equipment that was a modular builder, and it was a rectangular, call it a bale. And when they introduced the 7760, it was so well-researched and absolutely hit the customer's needs. The adoption rate was extraordinary. And Deere very quickly owned, they, they already were at that stage, most likely had a majority share, but they just, and ever since have completely dominated the cotton picker market because they delivered the right solutions. So when you get it right, farmers will adopt quickly. And so my sometimes pushback around some of that is that I just don't think that we've had solutions that have hit the mark. Right. But yeah, one thing that's been top of mind mind lately is, you know, I, I think climate sold to Monsanto would have been 2013. So it's been maybe it was 2014. It's been five or six years or so. And so, you know, that kind of kicked off this boom in in investment in ag tech or seems to in hindsight. And it it just seems like we're not seeing a bunch of exits. And that has me wondering, you know, is that because we have a customer adoption problem? And and maybe, you know, what you really need for a successful exit is, is traction when it comes to widespread customer adoption. You know, what are your thoughts on all that? Very interesting. I was visiting a venture capital group this morning, actually, and we were having exactly this conversation. I actually think the issues are, when you're looking at the space and looking at what the potential exits are, you are kind of assessing the sophistication of the industry as a whole, because who who's going to be actually doing the acquisitions, right? So in the climate example, of course, it was Monsanto. So what I actually see as the constraint here is the industry incumbents, that the industry incumbents have been very profitable for the last coming up on probably 10 years now, and they aren't yet investing in the innovation, which that's what would be driving a significant increase in exits. And so where I think what might lead to the tipping point is something that I'm starting to see is that we're seeing outside players coming into the space. Amazon Web Services has advertisements all over the place about their play around precision agriculture. You're seeing Microsoft talking about their interest in the agriculture space. I was at a conference for the National Institute for Animal Agriculture two or three weeks ago now in Des Moines, and IBM presented on their plays in the agriculture space. And so I think that we are going to start to see some interest from companies outside of agriculture, and that's going to push some pressure on industry incumbents to start paying attention and potentially making more of those acquisitions, which would drive up the exits. Cool. What other disruption do you think we should expect to see? You know, obviously predicting black swans by definition is impossible, but just in your opinion, where else do you think the agriculture industry is ripe for disruption in the coming decades? So we hit on one, the robotics. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a game changer on with gene editing, where we're going to see more introduction of crops that will better serve a, a greater multitude of crops. And those are two that I usually get very excited about. Oh, the other side would be functioning. We haven't seen this yet, but if we can start to get some functioning IoT systems. So we've seen a lot of sensors and 
we haven't yet really been able to close the loop and make them functioning support and value add to the farm. But I'm excited about some new, so, and part of the constraint there in the U.S. and across the globe is connectivity. So that's been a big constraint, IoT systems, to actually be delivering return the value add for producers. So if you have those sensors in the field, are you getting the information in a timely manner to actually be making decisions, on-farm decisions, about production practices? And co- connectivity has been a big constraint. And we're starting to see some interesting solutions that might be able to help solve some of the connectivity issues. So some is like swarm satellites, like mini satellites that could help with connectivity. We're starting to see some solutions, on the ground solutions, using radio waves, for example, to help facilitate and get around the lack of connectivity. So I don't know which one will solve the issues, but actually getting those sensors in place and having them add value to farmers will be a really important input to sh- to, be, to allow a shift towards the more complicated regenerative farming systems that I think we need to get to both from an environmental perspective, but also from a farmer profitability perspective. So those would be the three that I get excited about, robotics, gene editing, and functioning IoT systems. The farmer profitability point she makes there at the end is so important. I didn't list farmer profitability as one of the trends here, mostly just because it crosses over all five of these trends. It shouldn't be overlooked that the only way all of this works is if farmers, ranchers, agricultural producers can make money. So we should all be working to empower them to that end. The next issue or topic or trend is is one that I think we as an industry are not talking about nearly enough outside of a select few circles, and that is water. One of the responses to my listener survey that I put out this year said that they liked the water episodes, but felt like I really didn't do the issue justice. And that person is exactly correct. I hope to make up for that in 2020. But this interview with Dr. David Zetland, an economist and professor who's from California, did his PhD there at Davis, my alma mater, but now lives in the Netherlands, I thought was was rather mind blowing. His answer from the very first question I asked, which was how much should we be worrying about water issues affecting the future? of agriculture was we should be panicking. I just re-listened to the episode to try to grab a clip for you, and I I almost had to bring back the entire episode because it's just so important and so valuable and just so fascinating. So here he is. I did did ultimately grab a clip because I didn't want to put you through, you know, a two-hour episode here, but here he is talking about water economics and trading. When we're talking about agriculture, there's two major sources of water. One of them is groundwater, which, you, uh, which farmers tend to have the rights to use underneath their land. There's lots of regulations around that. They vary all over the place. Depends on the irrigation district, depends on the, the state, and so on. So let's just say that there is, there's groundwater to which farmers have some kind of property right, usually based on the, the fact that their land is above it. Then you have surface water, which is much more interesting, which is where you have a, a big canal, for example, and a bunch of side canals, and you have a water users association that shares the cost of maintaining those canals, and then each of the farmers might have rights to that water. And when you start talking about water markets, let's, let's start with the most simplest one. That's when two farmers are adjacent to each other, and one says, hey, I, I'm not going to take all my water right this year from the irrigation district. How about I, I send you a couple acre feet and you send me a couple acre feet next year, or you buy me a nice dinner, or whatever that is. So an informal market between two people is just you know trading water. I think that's probably been happening for most of human history. 
when you get into more interesting markets, that's when you have, for example, all of the farmers in an irrigation area and they are buying and selling water with each other and they're using the same infrastructure. They know each other. So the, the costs are quite low. If someone doesn't pay up, then everybody can bring social pressure. Then you get to a more the most sophisticated market where you have farmers and other users, could be industry, could be such as frackers, that's very common. It could be cities. And those other users are connected with the, the farmers via different distribution networks, large-scale distribution networks. And that's where you would have a market where farmers typically are the sellers because they typically have senior water rights. And they are selling typically for very high prices compared to how much money they could make from the water growing anything on their crop, uh, sorry, on their land, because the industry and, and cities will pay 10 times higher prices. The last thing I'll say is that I'm a big fan of, of having water markets in terms of a lease hold to water so that I sell the, the right to use my water for one year or I sell my water, but not my right, as opposed to a water market where you sell the right permanently, you sell the right to water, which I think is rather too strong a market for the way that we understand water flows in the sense that we can, a farmer might make a sale that everybody will regret that's a one-way sale of a, of a water right. The most functional larger scale market in the world, there's two of them. One is in Chile. The other one is in Australia. I'll talk about the Australia one. And that's where people can buy and sell either permanent rights or temporary flows, like I mentioned before. And if you ship the water from yourself to someone else downstream, there's an automatic deduction that's calculated into this for the environment and for those conveyance losses. So those trades can actually settle very quickly and you can take delivery of your water fairly quickly, but for example, still in a week. So in that sense, water markets, after a lot of effort and development, are functioning as best as can be expected in some parts of the world. But in the US, it's very rarely the case. And that is where I, as an economist, say that's because we haven't treated water as a valuable commodity for many decades, and we don't have those institutions for managing that scarcity and allowing people to buy and sell and, and, and make money on it. So that's kind of a, a, a missed opportunity for a lot of farmers, either on the buy side or the sell side. Yeah. Can we drill into that a little bit more about about kind of the the value of water? You know, I think a lot of people say, well, water water's free. It falls from the sky. It, it's stored in the ground or it's stored in our rivers or it's stored in this, this surface infrastructure you're talking about. Can, can you talk more about that from, uh, from an economist's perspective? Yeah. I mean, the, there's a couple things. One is that in, in history and in tradition with agriculture, we didn't think about having to pay to take delivery of water. You would literally throw a pump in the river and pump as much as you want. Or you would you know, drill a, a, a well on your property and pump as much as you want because it was, it was like that free. You, and the only cost you paid was the cost of delivery. That's actually true for a lot of tap water right now. We pay for the cost of delivery. So the water itself as a right is often given away for free by politicians, either to cities in the case of urban water or to farmers based on all kinds of laws and traditions over the, over the centuries. So that is how we think about it mentally, emotionally. When you think about labor, you don't just say, hey, buddy, come over here and work for free. You have to pay that person for their time. If you think if you want to buy a machine that's going to run on diesel, you have to pay for the manufacturer, you have to pay for the diesel. So water has been an input that has been pretty undervalued compared to all the other inputs that farmers are used to. And free is great when, as long as there's too much water. And, and the reason that my first book is called The End of Abundance and my second book is called Living with Water Scarcity is because that world where farmers could take as much as they could afford to in terms of their, their pump capacity, that world is going away or it's gone. 
in that sense, we have to tra- start treating water as a scarce commodity. And that means to know how much water is out there in terms of your local uh, aquifer or your local watershed, who has the rights to that water. Uh, very importantly, are there more rights uh, as in claims on the water than there is actual wet water, which means that you're going to have lawsuits and, and fights because you know there might be 10 people claiming a certain unit of water. So you have to figure out all of those facts, essentially, before you can even deliver water through an administrative system. And that's where a lot of communities are currently struggling with you know, figuring out who gets less water. Once you unitize the water and you identify the, the owners uh, to the water, then you can start buying and selling it. And the value that, that the, the, the price that emerges, let me, let me set this up as an economist, the price that emerges reflects the different values. So if I'm selling you water, let's say I'm selling you water for $50 an acre foot, and I uh, can grow a crop and I'm going to make a profit, a water profit of 40 bucks a foot on that water, but I could sell it to you for 50 bucks a foot, then yeah, I'm making way more money by selling it to you because I, I don't even grow that crop, right? I'm following my land. And then you get it and you're saying, oh, well, I need to keep my, my trees alive because I'm growing cons and that might be worth 200 bucks a foot to you. And you're paying 50 and, and it's worth 200. So you're very happy also because your pecan trees are alive. I highly recommend that you go back and listen to the full episode with Dr. David Zetlin, which is episode number 159. Also, I believe you can find online his book, Living with Water Scarcity for Free in PDF form. I think we had a link to that in that show. I think someday our kids and their kids are going to look back and shake their heads at the way that we depleted groundwater in some of our most important agricultural areas. This is a topic we'll definitely be exploring in future episodes because it's extremely complex. Another thing that will be happening in future episodes is bringing back the direct-to-consumer segments that I called Five-Minute Farmer this past summer. The responses to the audience survey were overwhelmingly in favor of bringing them back. I'm going to probably change the name to Farmer Spotlight because it was a misnomer saying that they were all in five minutes and also because I I think uh, we want to make sure we give them the attention that they deserve. Now, while they may not get the airtime of a featured guest on this show, they do represent Represent an extremely important part of the future of agriculture. Something I'm calling for the purposes of this episode, e-commerce and or direct-to-consumer as a trend. As technology takes away gatekeepers in the food industry, just as it has done so in other industries, you don't need to be a big food company to sort of muscle your way into shelf space at a grocery store anymore. Everyone has a shelf space of the internet. And add to that improvements in last mile logistics, and the market will continue to be more and more accessible for direct-to-consumer models. Here's one that we featured last summer, Hannah Esch from Oak Barn Beef. This is another college student. It's just by chance that the first two, Gavin and Hannah, are both in college. I got super excited when I talked to them both because how cool is this? In college, trying to create a business in one of the most challenging industries in the world, which is agriculture, but also trying to think outside of the box when it comes to marketing. Hannah was the Nebraska beef ambassador where she traveled the state and was surprised to find that even in Nebraska, there's a huge gap between consumer knowledge and producer knowledge and just a misunderstanding between the two. And she got very interested at that time in how could I start to bridge that gap potentially through a direct-to-consumer business. And here's where it gets really interesting because people talk bad about millennials, but here's what they'll do. When they're on fire about something, they'll do whatever it takes to find the information online and reach out to learn more, which is exactly what Hannah did. 
So when I first decided I wanted to own this business, I started researching companies all over the United States to see how they did it, what I can learn from them, etc. And when I came across Five Mary's Farms, which is a direct-to-consumer meat company out of Northern California, I realized that they would be the best to learn from. And even though they didn't offer an internship, I wrote them a letter and asked if I could be their intern for the summer. And surprisingly, they accepted me and I moved out to Northern California last summer and they taught me the ins and outs of a farm to table operation, shipping a perishable product and social media marketing. And there's no way I would be anywhere close to where I am today without them. Now, Hannah comes from a beef production background. Her family has raised cattle for quite some time and primarily marketed them through traditional channels. So I was curious about what difference, if any, this internship with Five Marys made on her operation. So like a lot of ranchers do, we were selling whole beefs and half beefs on the side for a while, but I'll go... When I returned home from my internship this summer, we pivoted to how we operate now. So e-commerce based, online shipments, that kind of stuff. And when I returned home in August, I launched our first ever weekly special, which was also my 21st birthday sale. So that was kind of fun to do that. And I can't believe how many orders we got from that. And it was maybe one of the most exciting moments in my life to be able to go through the process and actually fulfill and take all that I had learned from this summer and put it into play. Now, one big skepticism I often hear about direct-to-consumer agriculture is that if you don't live right next to the consumer, the freight costs will kill you. Well, like any good entrepreneur, Hannah is not letting that challenge stop her from reaching her customers. Yeah, we can ship anywhere in the United States. We have broken it down through regions. So for certain regions, for example, the surrounding states of Nebraska, it's $25 to ship a package and the coast is 65. However, within the next month, I think we're going to be able to lower that cost for the coast. Working on some research right now to make that possible. If they're making a large purchase, then that shipping price is totally worth it for them. So where did Hannah get the grit and determination and the ability to think outside the box to try to launch a business from scratch and reach customers all over the U.S.? Well, in addition to growing up in agriculture, Hannah goes to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, where she studies both animal science, but also is a part of the Angler School for Entrepreneurship. And she's been able to blend all of her studies in science, entrepreneurship, and of course, growing up farming into this business in some really cool ways. Yeah, so all of our cattle are born at Esch Cattle Company, which is my family farm. And then shortly after that, we send in a small DNA sample from every calf to a local DNA testing lab in Lincoln, Nebraska. And although the animal science major in me geeks out about this every time, it actually plays a huge importance in our selection process. But this DNA can tell us all kinds of carcass traits. So it tells us their tenderness gene, marbling gene, ribeye area, and thousands more. And that helps us select the highest quality animals from the beginning. And so through that selection and a phenotypical evaluation, then Oak Barn Beef purchases the cattle from Esh Cattle Company and they're transitioned to a corn-fed diet, which they stay which until they reach market weight, which is approximately 1,350 pounds. 
and then we transport them to a USDA inspected locker where they are slaughtered, dry aged, fabricated, and packaged. And then after those, that process is done, we bring the beef back to Oak Barn Beef and it is marketed online. And then during the checkout process, customers can choose to have the box shipped directly from our farm to their doorstep or for local orders. We have pickup locations in Lincoln, Omaha, and Unadilla twice a month. So whether you are in Nebraska and can go to one of those pickup stations or elsewhere in the country, all of you, if you're in the U.S., can go to oakbarnbeef.com. That's O-A-K-B-A-R-N-B-E-E-F.com. I think I got the spelling right there, but it's oakbarnbeef.com. And you can buy anything from individual cuts to beef bundles to a subscription box that'll arrive at your door in a normal interval with some meat inside of it for you. Fantastic story here. I love hearing about somebody who is learning in college, learning the science, learning the business, and applying it in a way that's direct to consumer. Would love for you to support Hannah at oakbarnbeef.com. I love those stories and really respect the boldness it takes to build a brand. We have all seen the toll commoditization can take, especially in recent years. I mean, that push to be the large, efficient, low-cost producer just to survive can be a real challenge. Building a brand, even if on the side, to gain exposure and visibility to a discerning customer base could be one way to hedge against those markets. Next is somewhat of a more controversial topic, but one that I think cannot be ignored, and that is alternative proteins. Much has been made of the plant-based burgers that are now offered in fast food restaurants and other restaurants and places throughout the U.S. and, and abroad. Their quick distribution has been certainly impressive, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, products that are not yet commercially available. It was certainly interesting to talk to Finless Foods founder Mike Selden on episode 173. I think Finless Foods is a great case study because they have some compelling reasons as to why their product, Bluefin Tuna, would be much better cultured in a lab rather than harvested in the wild. Here's founder Mike Selden. And the first thing that we're really focusing on is Bluefin Tuna. And we think that Bluefin Tuna is a really good initial move to market because it has a lot of things that people like, but also a lot of things that people don't like. You know, Bluefin Tuna is on the threatened species list, at least specific Bluefin Tuna is. And so it's like a conservation effort to try and move people's eating habits away from that and towards land-produced bluefin, but also the supply side itself is extremely constrained. People have been attempting to farm bluefin for four decades now and have so far been mostly unsuccessful. There's really only one operation worldwide that can grow the tuna all the way from embryo up to sexual, excuse me, sexual maturity and complete the life cycle. And so, um, and they're not really having a lot of easy time of scaling. And a lot of this is because bluefin tuna is a very long-lived, very large, and very complicated animal. It's, you know, it's like six feet long or two meters long or something like that. And it needs a lot of space. It migrates across the entirety of the ocean. And this means experiments are very difficult to do on them, especially because it takes about three to five years for them to reach sexual maturity. And so that means in order to run one experiment in farming them, it does take three to five years. But for us, since we're working with things on a cellular level, we can have the cells dividing in a matter of 24 hours to maybe like a handful of days. So instead of three to five years per experiment, it's like three to five days per experiment, which makes us able to move much, much faster and hopefully get this to market at a price point that makes sense to people even faster than the current efforts at Bluefin aquaculture can scale. And so the first product that we're really focused on initially is a spicy Bluefin tuna roll and a non-spicy Bluefin tuna roll. 
spicy like tuna rolls are pretty common in America. Most Americans are familiar with it, which makes that really easy for us. We don't have to do a lot of like customer education on like what this other type of food is. And we think this is a good point for an initial launch because we want to demonstrate ourselves as high quality. We think that sushi demonstrates that. We want to launch ourselves in a market that people trust. We think that people generally trust the U.S. market. And we want to launch ourselves in a place where not only the price point is in favor of like what we're working with, because we're working with some fairly expensive medical technologies trying to make them cheaper, but also a lot of the problems related to overfishing are caused by this high-end market. You know, people talk a lot about how we're going to need to like feed a larger world and like feed a lot more people. And obviously that's completely true. There's a lot of people that need to be fed, but the people who are really causing environmental devastation are not the people who are part of these expanding populations in the developing world. 50% of lifestyle emissions worldwide are created by the top 10% richest people on earth. And a lot of the bluefin tuna is bought by some of the richest people on earth as well. And so the hope is that if we can undercut this bluefin tuna with something that is, you know, that tastes better, that is cheaper, and that is healthier, that people will choose that rather than its wild-caught equivalent, even if they don't really care that much about sustainability or environmentalism or ocean health in general. You started Finless Foods, I believe, in 2016. What made you think this might be possible? I read an article in 2014 called The Blood Harvest in the Atlantic. And this article was about how we harvest horseshoe crabs, which are this like prehistoric-looking critter that burrows under the sand we take its blood and we use it for pharmaceutical quality assurance. Its blood is this very special thing. It's this beautiful opaque blue color. And this blood is able to, it does something very special, basically. When it comes in contact with any bacteria or a toxin created by bacteria, it turns the entirety of the solution into jelly. And so you can put a tiny bit of it into batches of drugs people create in the pharma industry. And if it turns to jelly, you know that batch is contaminated. The problem is that we're destroying the ecosystem that these animals live in to catch them. Farming efforts have been unsuccessful, and basically we're running out. And if we want to keep making pharmaceuticals that are safe, medicine that's actually safe for people to use, we need to find an alternative way. We need to find another like, way to test them. And so these scientists in the 70s set out to create a synthetic equivalent to horseshoe crab blood. <clears throat> and they made this thing called factor C which did the exact same thing that the horseshoe crab blood did, but was produced outside of a horseshoe crab. And me reading that article, I just thought, well, if you can make horseshoe crab blood outside of a horseshoe crab, why can't you just make any meat outside of an animal? And I was very interested in this idea of like the environmental devastation caused by animal agriculture, and I really wanted to fix it. But to me, it seemed like the only efforts that people were putting towards fixing it were just people who were like, well, we'll vote with our dollars and we won't buy meat, you know, like vegetarianism and veganism. But that to me doesn't seem like an option for a lot of people. I know a lot of people like don't have the money to constantly look for vegan food or don't have the resources nearby. Or, like the only food that's convenient to them is meat. And so as long as meat is like the more convenient, the better tasting and the cheaper option, people are going to go for it. And so I was like, well, what if we could make something that is all of those things, but also is sustainable and is created without this massive environmental strain on the world that we live in? To me, Mike is pretty convincing. Similar arguments are being made out there for beef, pork, poultry, and other proteins. We could debate the facts on each one of those, but the narrative will sway some consumers, in my opinion. Listen to Mike on episode 173, and also you might want to take a listen to Bruce Friedrich from episode 183 earlier this month talking about alternative proteins. I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon, folks, even if they're not really your cup of tea. 
If these products do start to take market share from traditionally raised meat, what does that mean for not only ranchers, but feed companies, animal health companies, processors, and all other participants in the incumbent value chain? I don't think we'll see that in our lifetimes, you know, take over, but I do think it's an interesting thought exercise to consider what are the impacts of this on the future of agriculture. So those are the five themes that stick out to me from 2019, regenerative agriculture, investment in ag tech innovation, water, e-commerce or direct-to-consumer, and alternative proteins. So what's coming for 2020? You already heard me say that we're bringing back the farmer spotlight segments and going to look deeper into water issues. Beyond that, I do want to do more close-up looks at farmer adoption of new ideas and technology, and I also want to better understand food insecurity, both in the U.S. and in other countries. I have several ideas for improving the show, many of which are thanks to your suggestions, so I really do appreciate that. Ideas such as uh, improving the sound quality, producing some documentary-style miniseries uh, that, that will debut throughout, releasing more bonus in-depth content to those who want it, hosting some sort of virtual startup pitch events, or perhaps even a live event. I also want to write more, more analysis, not just recaps of these episodes, and I'd like to connect more of you who are like-minded, entrepreneurial, intellectually curious people interested in agriculture to each other. Candidly, it's it's been a little bit frustrating for me to have so many ambitions for this program, for where it could go, but but being pretty limited in terms of time and resources to invest in it. I'm a business owner, and I do recruiting, I'm a family man, and have other obligations. But that said, if you like the ideas mentioned, if you'd like to see the show improve and become more than just a weekly podcast, I'm creating an opportunity for us to to grow this thing together. In the coming weeks, I'll be rolling out a way to support the show financially and join a membership community. The more people that choose to support, the the more ideas that we'll be able to make a reality. Now, membership communities sounds like work, so uh, it's not more work. It's just a way for you to support, and if you want a community as part of that support, that's that, that'll be part of the thank you I'll offer. Stay tuned for more details on that. I will be rolling that out in the coming weeks. And if you're thinking, hey, I just like the way things are, and I don't really want to contribute or join a membership community, that's perfectly fine. The, the show's going to go on. Very grateful for you being here. It'll be just like it, it always has been, and I really do appreciate it. So don't don't feel like I'm all of a sudden trying to drop the hammer on, on trying to monetize this thing. It's really just, I want to take it to the next level, but I can only do that with, with you along with me and with your support. But if that's not for you, that's perfectly fine. I am grateful for your time and your attention. Hey, it's a new year full of new opportunity. We'll be back next week with our first 2020 Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.